If you could remain standing for the honoring of the reading of God's Word this morning. Today's text comes to us from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, and the sermon is entitled, I Never Knew You. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You may be seated. I wish to give you today's central biblical principle at the outset of the message, and it is the proof of whether or not one is a true Christian is found in his obedience to the commands of Christ. Now, if you recall last week, we examined Jesus' caution against false teachers and false prophets. If you remember, I said that I believe that what Jesus was pointing to with regard to the bad fruits that give away the false teachers, that the bad fruit was bad teaching. And I believe that to be true. This week we turn now to false disciples. Last week was a sermon about false prophets. And this week we will study false disciples. Now you and I know that in this world, there are many self-proclaiming Christians, but not many authentic Christians. Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't make you a true Christian. For as Jesus clearly states in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. If you think about it, the most important question on the face of this planet is the question, am I really a Christian? That question is the single most important question on the face of this planet. As a corollary, therefore, the most frightening experience for any human soul would be the experience of standing before Christ one day, on the day of judgment, and hearing verse 23 come out of His mouth, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I do not want any of you to hear that in a few years on the Day of Judgment. That is by far the most scariest thing you could ever hear. Once those words come out of the mouth of God, there is no second chance and there is no turning back. At that point, your future in hell is sealed for eternity. The moment you hear those words come out of the mouth of God, Your future is sealed. You are permanently disqualified from heaven. In a sense, from time to time, as you live this life on earth, this pilgrimage, you ought to ask yourself, will will I hear verse 23 from Jesus? None of you should ever be so sure that you never ask yourself this question from time to time. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. 
I don't want you to get there and here, depart from me. Because of God's absolute holiness, His wrath and hell against sinners will be immensely fierce. To give you a picture image, the most worst atrocity committed by ISIS will not compare to the horrors of hell. The pictures that you saw of World War II and its atrocities will not compare to the wrath of God in hell. The pictures of survivors of Holocaust or the atomic bomb, as grotesque as those pictures were, will not compare to the wrath of God in hell. I want you to think about that for a moment. Sometimes I think we have a hard time imagining just how bad hell will be. And all I really have to do is just look at some of those pictures. Look at the, the victims of the atomic bomb. And I remind myself just how bad hell will be. Hell will be infin- infinitely worse than any of those atrocities of war. Since we are all sinners... We therefore all deserve eternal hell. Yet God in His great love for us sent His only Son Jesus Christ to live a sinless life and to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus absorbed God's holocaust, God's wrath on your behalf. Three days later, He historically resurrected from the grave. We will be celebrating Easter very shortly in April, which commemorates this historic event so that if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus as your Lord God and Savior you will have eternal life every Easter should be a uh, should be a, a, a memorial for you jogging your memory that yes indeed you are headed for eternity in heaven It is belief in this gospel that transfers your soul from darkness to light, from hell to heaven, from destruction to salvation. Now at the heart of biblical Christianity is the belief that salvation is achieved solely through faith in the gospel. I was on a flight coming back from Kansas City and the woman next to me was a woman who grew up as a Baptist in North Carolina lived in New York for the past, I would say, 16 years or so, and uh, attends church occasionally now, and is, is dating a, a man who is or was a Roman Catholic. And I had a few moments on the plane to just share the gospel with her and to give her the core difference between Roman Catholicism and Biblical Christianity. The beauty of the Protestant Reformation was that it recovered this central belief from the abyss of sacramental Roman Catholicism. Here's the hard truth. The moment a person adds a single work of faith to the gospel, a single work of faith to simply believing in the gospel for salvation, at that very moment you have a false gospel. Roman Catholicism is not merely another denomination within Christianity. Roman Catholicism is another gospel. The entire New Testament book of Galatians is a scorching testament to this truth. 
And some things are worth fighting for. And the Apostle certainly fought for that truth because his entire life's work was based on that truth. And if you were to ask me, Pastor, why are Roman Catholics not saved? I could talk about the veneration of Mary. I could talk about their doctrine of sainthood. I could talk about purgatory and the selling of indulgences. But I would get to the central point, and that is this. The biblical message of the Bible, biblical Christianity, is simply this. What sets us apart from Roman Catholics is this one message. We believe that a person is saved simply by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sola fide. Whereas they believe, yes, believe in Jesus, but you must also have the seven sacraments of the church. It's a faith plus works religion. Whereas we believe in justification by faith in Christ alone. That's it. That's the difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants. The difference between a true gospel and a false one. I want you to listen to a few verses from Galatians. Galatians 2.16 Know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Here's another one. If you were to ask me, but why are you saying that Catholics are not saved? Aren't you being a little too strong there? Listen to Galatians 1.8. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now listen to Galatians 3.2. We believe that a person is saved the moment he or she believes in the gospel, right? And what happens at that moment? You're baptized in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. In fact, the biggest difference between a saved person and an unsaved person is that the saved person has the Holy Spirit living inside him or her. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now listen to Galatians 3 too. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is by believing what you heard. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit for eternal life the moment you heard and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. There is nothing more important than what I'm doing this morning. Oh, the miracle of God that by the breath of one man, another man is saved. You are saved by believing in what you hear. Brothers and sisters, I don't want anyone to deceive you. I had a Jehovah's Witness once. Um, 
I, I, I remember. It, uh, it was a sunny af- Saturday afternoon. I just finished an MDiv class in seminary, and uh, I wanted to evangelize in Manhattan, so I gave out some tracks on the Upper West Side. And Jehovah Witness man took one, and he said, Oh, you're an evangelical Christian. And I said, Yes, I am. And we began to talk, and the man started getting really angry. And his parting words in anger, literally screaming at me in, in the middle of busy Manhattan as he was crossing the street. And, and New Yorkers are crazy like that. You know that. They'll do that. Screaming at me all the while crossing the street. He, he says, uh, you evangelicals make it too easy. That's why your teenagers are full of sin. And just like the rest of the world, you make it too easy. It's not just by faith alone. You must also live righteously. Faith alone does not save, he said. Well, I want you to know this morning that faith alone in Christ alone does save. It does save. You receive the Holy Spirit by hearing and believing in the gospel. That's how you are saved. Not because of anything you've done. Your works are as filthy rags in the eyes of holy God. Faith. Faith in the heart is what saved you. You could do all the good works in the world, but without faith in the heart, you're not saved. There is no message on this planet more important than the message of justification through faith alone in Christ alone. Do you see how important this is? Do you see, I, I see a lot of Protestants nowadays who are so confused. They go as far as calling Catholics their brothers and sisters in Christ. They are not. Blood was shed for this doctrine. The Inquisition was all about this doctrine. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. And this is worth dying for. Or as Paul famously put it in Ephesians 2, 8-9, through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Jehovah Witness could stand before me and say, You see our youth? They live holy lives. And I say, I cannot boast. That's the point of Ephesians 2.8. No one may boast. You are all saved by grace. Because if God gave you what you deserved, we would all go to hell. All of us, we deserve hell. No one boasts. Now having said all that, what role does works play in the Christian life? It's an important question. I want to start off the sermon with a very big emphasis on justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That's what makes us Protestant. That's what makes us believers, okay? But having said that now, there is a grave error within the church today, and that is the error of license. Antinomianism. And I think an outflow of that could be this question. What role does works play in the Christian life? 
Well, the Apostle answered that question for us in that Ephesians text that I just put up here, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. We love that. As Protestants, that is a cornerstone verse for all of us. We have it memorized. We love that verse. We cling to that verse. But the question of what role does works play in our lives is answered by the Apostle in the very next verse. Immediately after his famous declaration of salvation by faith alone, Paul then addresses the issue of works in verse 10 of the same chapter. After declaring that we are saved solely by grace through faith, Paul unleashes a jewel. He says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What a jewel. What a gold mine. Ephesians 2, by the way, brothers and sisters, is a gold mine of Scripture treasury. You could dwell in Ephesians 2 for a while. What, what an amazing... You could write a PhD dissertation just on this verse. I mean, there is so much there. Just like election, your vocation... What you will do with your life has been selected by God before the foundation of the world. You could get that just from Ephesians 2.10. You know, like one day you'll go to heaven and unbelievers will also stand before God and the unbeliever will not be able to say, it's not fair, you chose Him and not me, right? In the same way, what we end up doing in life, we have no right to say to God why did you give him such gifts and opportunities and not me why did you call me to do this and you called him to do that why didn't you give me that job and you only gave him that job we can't do that because God has prepared every person's job before the foundation of the world out of his divine magnificent wisdom It is in His sovereign hand. That's amazing if you think about it. And just like one day we will gloriously stand before God in our election and He will will raise us up to reign with Him, not because of our merit, so also likewise in this lifetime, what we do in our, with our lives, whether He raises up or, or puts us down, has nothing to do with our merit. All in His sovereign hand, all due to His wise mind, according to the counsel of His perfect will. It's a stunning verse. I think a lot of us focus so much on election that we forget that part of election is what we do with our lives on this earth. Our works matter. Because just like our salvation was predestined before the foundation of the world, our works were also predestined. That's amazing if you think about it. I was just having a conversation before worship began about what a certain individual is doing with his life right now. All of that was predestined before the foundation of the world. 
Some vessels are made for honor, others are not. What's interesting about the text is that as a phone was made to make phone calls or as a chair was made to seat humans, so likewise Christians were made to do good works. Do you see that in the text? Handiwork, referring to God's creation. Prior to your salvation, you were not capable of producing God-honoring fruit. But after your salvation, that's what you naturally do. You do it because that's what you were made to do. Notice that your justification or your regeneration precedes your production of obedience to Christ. Notice that. That's essential here. Because every other world religion will tell you that your obedience is what will gain you your justification, i.e. your salvation. But in biblical Christianity, God first recreates you, He justifies you, and then therefore you are able to do your good works. Do you see that? Before the manufacturer takes the parts and makes a smartphone, it is not functional. And before God recreates you and saves you and makes you a Christian, you are not able to do the good works which you were made to do. It's as simple as that. Essentially, Paul is saying, yes, you were elected by God to be saved. And so, yes, you were saved the moment you believed in the gospel. What do I mean by that? In other words, one day in your life, someone came to you, had to, and shared the gospel to you, either audibly or by word. You read it off the page of a book or something, or off a track. It is because of God's election that the moment that occurred, you believed. It was not because of your willpower. Yes, your will was involved, but it was not ultimately because of your, or, of your will. The Bible says that we who are born of God, which were born not of man, not of flesh, not of blood, not of the will of man, but of God. The ultimate decisive factor... For our salvation is the will of God. God elected you and therefore when the gospel was preached to you, you believed. You did not choose Him, He chose you. Get that? But know this, God recreated you. That's what that word regeneration means, right? Regenesis. God recreated you so that you could begin doing the good works which God prepared for you to do before you were born. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? Now, while works do not save, they are, however, powerful evidences for a person's genuine salvation. I want you to think about a cherry tree. Surely, a tree is a cherry tree even in the dead of winter when there are no cherries on its branches. Yet to most observers, we usually identify a cherry tree as a cherry tree when in the spring it bears forth cherries. We shall know a tree by its fruits. Likewise, Christians are identified by their obedience to Christ. Jesus aptly said this in verse 21. 
the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter into the kingdom of heaven. For Christ and his apostles, any faith or profession of faith that is devoid of obedience is a false faith. It is a dead faith. I want you to listen to the Apostle James explain this. He says, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now what would have helped Luther is, it would have helped him to understand that when James said that, he does not mean that we are saved by faith and by works. What he's saying is that if faith is genuine, it will inevitably produce works. Or else it is a false faith, it is a dead faith. The two do not contradict. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. In other words, your deeds manifest what is latent to the eye. In other words, faith. Faith I cannot see. Works I can. So works are the demonstration of faith. Today's text, by the way, is the text that supports church membership. When we do church membership and we have membership interviews, it's not like I get some super x-ray spiritual glasses and I'm able to look right into your heart and say, Oh, I see true faith. Let's make him a member. I can't do that. We're humans. Today's text is the bona fide cornerstone text for, uh, this, the, for the support of church membership procedures. We are to use a person's body of work. In other words, when I look at your life and I look at your deeds, do they prove and do they show that you're a believer? And that's how we determine church membership. The Bible gives credibility for that procedure. It is obedience, particularly difficult obedience, that sets believers apart from false ones. It is What is amazing about this truth is the scope of its veracity. In the New Testament era, supernatural acts and miracles were performed by messengers of Christ. Why? Why did God allow His disciples to perform miracles? To verify the message. To verify the message. When you see a blind man that's totally blind, miraculously receive his sight, chances are you'll believe the messenger. Am I right? God still works like that in many parts of the world. Even in America. Not as often, but He does. Listen to Mark 16.20. Here's what it says. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them, and what? Confirmed His word by the signs that accompanied it. So, so here we see the purpose of miracles. It is to verify the word of God. Okay? And that's sort of what, we're, uh, what your deeds do today. Your deeds verify and confirm for, your, for, for you and for everyone around you that you are a genuine believer. 
Now today's message is terribly needed for two reasons. One, we live in an age where many, many Christians are neglecting doctrine and are running to miracle workers. Benny Hinn, um, Kenneth Copeland, we, we see this all the time. Then on the other hand, we live in an age where so many reformed thinkers and preachers are capitulating obedience to the hard <laughs> commands of Christ simply so that they don't have to deal with the hardships that follow radical obedience. For example, look at the issues of homosexual marriage and heterosexual remarriage. Both are clearly condemned by God. Yet many, many leaders are instructing couples to remain in such relationships. Although they may do many mighty works in the name of Jesus... Such reformed leaders are refusing to simply obey the clear will of our Father in heaven. Now if you look at verse 22, what's interesting here is that Jesus lists three supernatural acts which often certify the authenticity of the messenger. And what are they? Look at verse 22. Prophecy, exorcism, and other mighty works. Do you see that? Yet amazingly, amazingly, all three of these acts are not comparable in giving a person the type of assurance of salvation that simple obedience to the commands of Christ gives. It is amazing to think about the fact that you could cast out demons in the name of Jesus and still not be saved yourself. It is sobering to think that I could stand and preach the gospel without being saved myself. And for some, it is beyond belief that you could have an international ministry and do mighty works and not be saved yourself. Jesus informs that on the day of judgment, people will line up claiming to belong to Christ because of the supernatural acts that they've performed. Yet Jesus sternly rejects them and declares that He never knew them and identifies them as workers of lawlessness. This therefore gives us a clear picture of what Jesus wants from us. Instead of lawlessness and miracles, Jesus wants faith and simple obedience. Better the country farmer who simply obeys his Lord than the magnificent global preacher who disobeys the simple commands of Christ. Who cares if you have a global ministry called Desiring God if you tell men to remain in remarriages? Friends, this is immensely applicable for us today. Instead of striving to draw spectacular attention to yourself through mighty works, simply obey Christ through quiet faith. Aim to live a faithful life. Do the will of your Father who is in heaven. My job this morning as your pastor is a very simple one. 
I'm not the smartest man. I'm not the most educated man. I'm not, I haven't done the greatest works for Christ. But I will do one simple thing for you this morning. I am here to command you to simply believe in Jesus Christ and obey His commands. That's it. Nothing fancy, no supernatural signs. I don't have the gift of prophecy. I don't have the gift of healing. I just want you to humbly enter in through the narrow gate. That's all I want you to do. I read a text like today's, I thank God. Because I grew up in the Pentecostal Assembly of God tradition, where everybody's speaking in tongues and performing signs and miracles. And most of my members in my family weren't doing any of that. And we're wondering, are we less special? And you read a text like today, and Jesus is saying, Listen, forget all the exorcisms and crazy miracles and stuff. Just simply obey my commands. That's how you get into heaven. That's what today's verse is saying. As I close, I want to teach you something that might be new for some of you. Uh... A lot of you grew up watching Prince of Egypt and learning about the Ten Commandments, right? You ever wonder how the unbelieving priests were able to perform miracles? Right? Think about it, right? You read it. They're able to turn sticks into snakes... Right? Just like Moses. Now Moses' snake ate their snakes, but still. <laughs> right? I mean, Pharaoh saw that and he goes, eh, okay, so he ate them, but, but, but my priest turned them into snakes too. Now I've heard various explanations. Some people say it was ma- magic and an illusion. I don't buy that. You know why I don't buy that? Because when you go to Exodus, it actually says that it became snakes. How do you get around that? I mean, if you're going to explain that away, you're going to have to explain Moses' sna- staff becoming a snake too. You've you got to keep the same hermeneutic. Exodus 7.12 states that each man's staff literally became serpents just like Moses's. So I believe they actually became snakes. So what was going on here? Because in, in the burning bush... God gave that as an evidence that Moses was a messenger. And Moses is probably standing there going, God, what's going on? Wait wait a minute, they could do it too. (laughs) And God had a plan with that. You know why the priests were able to turn them into snakes? Because God allowed them to. Listen, outside of modern science, there is no spontaneous generation. Inanimate, inorganic objects do not become living things. That's only in fairy tales and in the theory of ev- evolution, sadly. But, 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 in, in, but in real life, inanimate objects do not become living things, organisms. It, it, inorganic objects doesn't become organic, and non-living does not become living. The only way that was able to occur was because God allowed it. The Bible doesn't record it, but I think the Egyptian priests were shocked as well. They were like, whoa, it worked! 
It worked! Now eventually, by the time you get to plague number four, I think, God stops it. He stops their ability to imitate and do it. And then the priests are finally like, This is the finger of God! <laughs> and they have to admit it, but... But why did God allow it for the first couple of miracles? God had a plan. It was to harden Pharaoh's heart. That's what the text says. Pharaoh saw it, and his heart was hardened. That's the same thing miracle workers do today. Miracle workers in the prosperity gospel use false miracles to sell their false gospel. It hardens hearts. Listen to Revelation 13, 13 through 14. And the second beast performed great signs to cause even fire from heaven to come down to earth in the presence of the people because of the signs it was given. Who gave? Who gave? God did. God gave the, uh, this beast, the second beast, the ability to perform miracles. Because of the signs it was given to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And so this right here is an imitation. If you read the Revelation, there's, there's a powerful imagery here of imitation. This is, the imi- is an imitation of the resurrection. Okay? Instead of 777, you have 666. It is an imitation of God. And so here you have a beast that was wounded by the sword, a mortal wound, just like Jesus Christ, and yet lived. So he's deceiving many. And what we see here in this text is that the ability to perform miracles does not it should not automatically make you conclude that the person or the performer is from God. I want you to understand that. Last week I spoke about the need to know the Bible in order to detect false teachers. This week I close by once again urging you to know your Bible. But this time, in order to know the will of your Father who is in heaven. More proof, more evidence as to why I believe that the fruit is, 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 is really a reference to the words of Christ is because of this text. It's not so much about you doing, but the words of Christ. Will you obey the words of Christ? By reading your Bible, you'll learn about the will of your Father uh, in heaven. You'll learn of your Father's will. Don't look for miracles. Don't look for signs and wonders. The Bible says that God will even enable the devil to do some of those things just so he could harden the hearts of the unregenerate. Right? God will go to that great of a length to harden the hearts of those through whom he will be glorified through in hell. So don't look for signs and wonders. Don't look for miracles. Don't settle for just emotions or conjecture. God has already revealed His will and His word. The question is, will you simply read and obey? Or will you merely cry, Lord, Lord, while continuing to work lawlessness 
and spectacular signs. God is not impressed with marvelous, mighty works. He loves simple, childlike obedience. If I said it, you do it. That's it. That's what shows me you believe. And brothers and sisters, that goes all the way back to that garden long ago where God gave one simple command, don't eat the fruit. It was his way of simply telling Adam and Eve, trust me. And we all know how that story ended. This morning, I want to urge you, believe, trust, and as a result, obey your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for giving us the privilege